Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when the Sunday Times Culture Magazine interviewed a celebrity bodyguard named Pulp, quote, as in fiction, who described his training as coming from Streets of London, sir. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one has ever seemed to, is journalist and writer Mick Wright. Mick, what you up to? Where can we find it? Just follow me on Twitter at Broken Bottle Boy, or or sign up to Conquest of the Useless, which is a, a media criticism newsletter that comes out seven days a week because I am clearly seriously mentally ill. Brokenbottleboy.substack.com is the place to go for that. Right. Well, I'm quite pleased to say that your first choice will come as a, maybe as a bit of a surprise to people who follow you on Twitter or on the newsletter because it doesn't have that much on the surface to do with any of that at all. <laughs> from The Adventures of Pete and Pete, something that I remember being on constantly in the background as a student. Mick, what was this? Well, The Adventures of Pete and Pete is, uh, is an American um, comedy television series created by uh, Will McRobb and Chris uh, Viscardi for Nickelodeon. There's a series of one-minute shorts which ran as interstitials on Nickelodeon in 1989, but it was uh, commissioned for a regular half-hour show from 93 to 96, and it is, for my money, pound for pound, uh, one of the greatest shows ever made. And uh, when people are in introduced to it they realize how amazing it is i mean it, it has guest appearances from like michael stipe from rems in there iggy pop plays someone's conservative dad it's a fascinating show that like you can experience on one level as a kid you experience it as in these are kind of the, these rebellious kids in this town that is kind of bizarre it feels to me that it belongs in a continuum with stuff like round the twist in eerie indiana there was an era when shows were allowed to do quite weird things uh, so in, in pete and pete there are two brothers big pete and little pete their mom and dad uh, their mom joyce who has a plate in her head and their dad don who is kind of a very competitive man always trying to like make good time on the roads little pete has a, a friend Artie, the strongest man in the world who doesn't seem like a superhero but through the series you know actually does have powers there are various bad guys endless mike hellstrom is is the kind of mortal enemy of big pete and then little pete has a has a range of enemies including pit stain and paper cut and principal ken schwinger who is who's played by adam west so i mean this is a show that just has this like depth of like law and interesting stuff across three seasons and of course there's their friend ellen who is very key to this alison finelli who was amazing and michelle trachtenberg is in it she plays some um, nona f mecklenburg she she went on to do quite a lot of stuff after this so yeah it's it's a phenomenal show it just is really brilliant show 
Well, I'm really interested by the fact that, you know, there's a couple of years age difference between us, and I really was only aware of it to begin with, because there used to be that weird question and answer bit in the NME, where people write in asking questions that you wouldn't even bother searching for on Twitter now. You would have heard about it already. Mm. But somebody wrote in saying, I've heard that Michael Stipe made a guest appearance on the American programme. What is it, and can I see it anywhere? And the reply was, it's this thing that sounds really interesting called The Adventures of Pete and Pete, and it might be coming to Nickelodeon next year. That's yeah. if you have Nickelodeon. What's interesting was it became quite a big studenty thing because it was sort of in the... It kind of fitted in, as we'll mention when we come to some of the guest stars, with the whole kind of... Not really grunge scene, but that kind of alt-rock scene that was around it that permeated everything. Yeah, it kind of tied of into the alt-rock scene of the late 80s and through to the mid-90s. You know, you've got people from that REM-type era, but you've also got, like, LL Cool J is in there. At one point, Pat Hearst does it. Hasn't <laughs> yes! Like, yeah. it's like Janine Lafrose plays the English teacher in it. So there are quite a lot of indie film royalty, later to be indie film royalty. And like Sid Straw, who played bass in a band called The Blowholes, appears three times in three really brilliant episodes as a maths teacher called Miss Fingerwood. Yeah, Michael Stipe's appearance is phenomenal. It's in one of my favourite episodes, What We Did on a Summer Vacation. He plays Captain Scrummy, who's like a, just a very unpopular ice cream vendor, the kind of rival to Mr. Tasty, who they love, who's an ice cream vendor with a swirly ice cream head and you never see his face it's fascinating really and it just wouldn't kind of exist and i mean even polaris the band who play the theme tune they're actually the band miracle legion it's just them minus one of their guitarists I kind of grew up in a family where we didn't have a lot of money because my parents had been in the Navy and then they were starting out as sales reps for pharmaceutical companies. And I'd say about 1995, they started to make not amazing money, but enough money that my dad wanted to get Sky for Sky Sports, you know, because Sky Sports was really starting to be a thing then. So they got Sky. And the two things that I watched was professional wrestling, like WWE, which was WWF then which I watched with my dad and I loved because we just both thought it was so stupid and really, really liked it. And then Nickelodeon. So I could have chosen Rocco's Modern Life for this or Ren and Stimpy, for instance. But Ren and Stimpy's quite well known. But Adventures of Pete and Pete became like my favourite TV show. So near the end of its run, I started watching it and I would have been, what, 11? So I kind of was more Little Pete than Big Pete, but Big Pete was what I... So it was a great show in a sense because there was a character I could associate with and empathise with in Little Pete, but there was a character that I could sort of think my life as I get further up in high school will be more like Big Pete and Ellen's life. So that's kind of why, and that's how I got into it. It's never been released on DVD in the UK. You can get it on an American region DVD, but it's expensive and hard to get. But quite a lot of the episodes are on YouTube. And I showed my stepdaughter um, the what we did on our summer holidays one the other day because it was so hot here. And that episode is about a hot summer where it's just appallingly hot and you can't really cope. So I was like, this is a perfect one to watch. And she, she really liked it. And she's only 10, so but it, it was the right sort of... It fitted for her. She was like, everything in this is really stupid, but sort of in a good way and I was like yeah that's a good description of it what I find interesting is it has kind of dropped off the radar like other similar series like Parker Lewis Can't Lose from around the same time have done but when I think back to it now I'm seeing traces of a number of things I mean definitely there's a bit of Malcolm in the Middle in there South Park these people clearly saw the adventures of Pete and Pete and drew their own kind of inspiration for it I mean well, Family Guy has show. Adam West in it so exactly Exactly. It's, it's totally true. I, I think the thing is, clearly, 
this was a cult show here but in the US it was on Nickelodeon which is a big channel you know the other show that I loved which I could have mentioned here was Clarissa Explains It All which never really got a main channel showing over here but of course we got Sabrina the Teenage Witch which was Melissa Joan Hart's Next, for me, Sabrina the Teenage Witch is her wings compared to Clarissa Explains It All, which is her Beatles. Like, that show is much <laughs> funnier, much edgier, much more interesting show. You know, she has a, a ladder up to her room that her friend comes in. And at one point, like, this boy who's being her boyfriend, they fall out and he sings, like, a Joe Cocker song to her to try and win her back and stuff. It's like, got a lovely weirdness to it. And Nickelodeon, in general, had this thing of slightly odd stuff, you know, in a lot of these shows. And, and you even got it later when they moved on to things like Keenan and Kel. There was always a kind of interesting slightly skewedness to some of these shows Rocco's Modern Life is certainly there Rocco's Modern Life is sort of like a more family friendly Ren and Stimpy in some ways so yeah I mean I could talk about Nickelodeon for ages but Pete and Pete I picked for this because fewer people know about it and because of this thing of you know I ended up becoming a music journalist and a lot of the uh, people that I was obsessed with or really like Juliana Hatfield obviously Debbie Harry's in it J.K. Simmons who obviously went on to be huge as a, a film star he's in it as a barber I could not love a show more than I love Pete and Pete because it has messages in it but it does them in a way which is not hugely oppressive like another great one is an episode where little pete hears a song that he only hears once and it's a garage band playing it and the garage band is played by polaris and he forms a band which includes sid straw playing miss fingerwood playing bass in the band the blowholes and they jam for hours and hours in an attempt to discover what the song is and the international adult conspiracy which is a thing in the show where all the parents are trying to stop kids from having fun just want to shut it down but for once his dad you know his dad always comes out right in the end his dad sort of ends up making a request because the requests are required to make the band some money to keep playing for the airwaves for them to keep playing the song and in the end they find the song and it's just sort of like a lovely message about like the power of music but done in this kind of skewed kind of way and in the same way with like what we did on our summer vacation with mr tasty it's like it's about what are the things that you as a child particularly on summer you get involved in creating these theories for yourselves like i once thought that a big house near us that also ran a kind of car cleaning company was actually a front for drug dealers and i spent the whole summer with my friends like staking it out because i was certain it was a front for drug dealers it's not they just sell chemicals to the auto industry but you know there was something like cars going at the wrong sort of time you know let's be detectives and whatever or another episode the night crawlers where pete decides he's not going to go to sleep and his friends join him and it's this thing of it's almost like a war movie as they're picked off one by one by sleep until Pete is left. And instead of like making him go to sleep, his mum comes out and helps him get to the, you know, the hour he was trying to reach to prove his point. And this is something there about like familial love and realising with kids that in the end you kind of have to understand that they aren't always going to live by your rules and you have to find a way to compromise so there's loads of brilliant messages in it but they're not done in a kind of didactic way you just experience them in a kind of very organic manner really i was just going to mention as well that you mentioned the enemies before i've always liked the fact that there were two of them that were really brilliantly unimaginatively named which is part of the storyline was there was a hat head who always looked like he'd just taken the hat off and his hair was in the shape of it yeah. and open face it was just that open face sandwich and that's how he got his nickname. <laughs> There's a great thing about Endless Mike Hellstrom. The only reason he's called that is because his hatred of Big Pete is endless. And that's it. And the other great thing about it is it's so like high school because sometimes
sometimes he and Big Pete are fighting with each other, but sometimes they join up together. There's a, a quite a powerful episode called Halloween where Big Pete decides he hates Halloween and he joins up with Mike Hellstrom. And it's about him sort of letting Little Pete down because Little Pete loves Halloween. There's also like a really good bad guy called Mike the Urinator Uplinger, who is a, a lifeguard who hates Little Pete. And in the end, they discover that actually he's the one who's been peeing in the pool. And they use like that chemical that turns the pool a certain color, you know, which I guess is always kind of mythological because you'd always get told that, you know, they use a chemical. So if you pee in the pool, they'll know. I don't think that ever's ever actually really happened. Or if it has, it's a pretty rare thing. OK, well, I can't comment on the rareness of that or not. But moving on to your next choice now, there's absolutely not nothing could use as a clip for this so have a listen to this and you'll find out why in a minute If in the army now by status quo, and in the navy by the village people, Nick, why have I stuck those together? Because I really like army and navy sweets, which are like a boiled sweet that are black in colour and they taste of licorice and herbs. They kind of got a slightly medicinal flavour, sort of similar to cough candy, but even more kind of hardcore. And I love them. And I used to have them whenever I got to go to the sweet shop and my grandma would be like, what do you want? I'd always have a quarter of army and navy sweets. I still like them now, but they are really like, I don't know. It's kind of like in music, it would be like saying I'm a big fan of Gigi Allen. You know, like people be like, this is a very distasteful (laughs) thing. Like, why do you like these? They are the, the black metal of the sweet shop because they are powerful and there's something about them that's very compelling if you like them but if you don't you're just like this is vile why would anyone eat these i just like them (laughs) well i should say that i've been rereading the great british tuck shop by former guests phil norman and steve berry and there's a section in that where they talk about the various constituents of pick and mix you know not that you would see now but that you would see on news agent shelves years ago and they do question whether anyone ever actually got army and navy sweets and well there's your answer you did But I've answered you boys every time. I also like lots of other sweets. Like I wasn't some kind of like it wasn't some kind of bizarre obsessional thing. I'd eat any sweets you gave me, frankly. But I just happen to like these. I think it is. It does tie into my future thing as a as a liker of obscure and hard to like music. You know, like I love the fall. And Army and Navy suits are probably like very fall type sweet. I'm sure Marky Smith wasn't averse to them actually, although he did mention Fisherman's Friends a lot, which really were kind of my equivalent. I used to like them. When I quite like them as well. But they are, like, the thing about Fisherman's Friends is, oh, well, actually, regardless of sexuality, if you want to engage in in any kind of sexual relationship with anyone, you can't be someone who regularly eats Fisherman Friends because I just think it's just not. It doesn't give you a good vibe. Do you still get army navy sweets now? Yeah, now and then. If I go to, if I go past a traditional sweet shop, you know, like if I go to the seaside when I'm in Norfolk or whatever, they still have them in place. Like Great Yarmouth, you could find them in some of the more traditional sweet shops there. I definitely would, yeah, because it's kind of a nostalgia hit. What I also like about them is I really like them, but now I'm a 36-year-old man. I try not to eat sweets at kind of like industrial speed. So what I like about them is they kind of are savouring sweet. You know, if you like them, you can't really crunch your way through them without shattering your teeth. And my teeth are pretty bad as it is. So, yeah. But, yeah, I can see here that I could get a three-kilogram thing of them for 28 quid. I'm not going to do that. 
but I, <laughs> you should crowdfund it and i'll just do a youtube where across a whole day i just eat the th- whole three kilogram <laughs> there is that thing though about kids do like to have something they can latch on to that only they like and it rarely happens with sweets i'm not sure i did it consciously though i take i think it was basically like my grandparents obviously grew up during the second world war they, they were teenagers going into their early 20s by the end of it i vaguely remember that my granddad must have had some of them once and he just idly like let me have one and i just took to them i was not a great kid for liking things either because people didn't like them or because people did i mean I mean, my partner often says to me one of the things she likes about me is in terms of music like obviously i love the fall and stuff like that but also like i'll as much get obsessed with a carly ray jepson record or whatever like oppressively almost catholic in my tastes and i've never been really interested in what people liked or didn't like you know like not that goth thing of being like well i like sisters of mercy because everyone in my school hates them or whatever i'm very much i just like things because i like them which i enjoy actually and particularly with music it makes it easier because you just sort of go well i like it if i like like it and particularly pop music i love really bubblegummy pop as much as i love obscenely heavy or hardcore hip-hop or whatever so i'm not good at saying what my good qualities are but that's probably one of them is that i'm very open in my tastes and i guess with sweets i was like that too i really like sour sweets that's what i like now i love a very sour sweet and i what i like in america is they have like obscenely sour sweets to a level probably because there's chemicals that would be illegal here you know they have really sour sweets so again if my partner goes to america for work which he does more often than me i'm always like can you bring me back like obscenely sour sweets that i haven't had before but i wonder if pick a mix of the variety that would have had army navy sweets in it's a bit of a dying art now because i mean well cinemas at the moment don't have pick a mix in anyway because i've been to the cinema recently it's quite limited what you can actually get in there at the moment for obvious reasons but i do remember noticing before all this happened that you know first of all pick a mix got more and more expensive you know obviously ian pick and ian mix were going to retire off the proceeds but then all the traditional stuff got replaced by like you know celebrate and miniature heroes which to me was never the point of it i think it's to do with vertical integration in that nestle and cabri probably do these deals with the cinema saying okay we'll give you this for this price if you stock these other things so i think that's what's happened but also i noticed the things that are most common in pick and mix now are things like cables and foam bananas and stuff like that which are kind of they're the kind of like the cables really dominate pick and mix now which i quite like but yeah you're right the classics are not there i think the death of woolworths exacerbated the death of the traditional pick and mix and probably traditional pick and mix only exists in some independent cinemas and some sort of holdout sweet shops really well one thing that has disappeared with the disappearance of Woolworths is the kind of cheap compilations where you might have found your next choice on in the days before well Spotify streaming iTunes whatever it's a record that I've got an enormous amount of fondness for but you're quite right you rarely ever hear <laughs> Okay, that was a bit of a emergency 
by 999. I'll come back to an interesting story I've got about that in a minute. But Mick, what's your background with this? I just really like 999. <laughs> I think they're a brilliant band. The first song of theirs I heard, though, I obviously I got into 1970s punk, mid to late 90s. I came into it through The Pistols and The Clash first, because they're the easiest ones to get, and there are always compilations coming out of those. Then through The Jam a little bit, and then sort of spread out into more rare stuff, or less known, less well-heard stuff, you know, The Vapors. But anyway, 999 I actually heard first in a skate documentary about the Bones Brigade, which was the group that Tony Hawk and uh, a lot of other great skaters were in. And they played Trouble, which is my second favourite of the 999 songs. And then I got in and I heard Emergency. And the first few 999 records are, are really astoundingly good. What I like about them as well is they're a band that just seems to sing about very relentlessly prosaic experience of being on the streets of Britain and feeling unsettled. And for me right now, stuff like Emergency and and Trouble, they feel very contemporary now. I I feel we're in a similar-ish state, you know, where you've got the far right on the march and you've got left-wing politics really suppressed and, you know, a conservative government that is very, very authoritarian. Yeah, it just feels to me that they're a band that deserve a bit more credit than they got, really. Well, yeah, I didn't hear them for a long time either, which is weird because I can't claim to have, you know, been a punk rocker as a young child but I have elder siblings who were on the periphery of the punk scene when I grew up we always had Top of the Pops on we had you know Radio 1 on quite a lot I remember hearing knowing about who John Peel was before I ever heard him that sort of thing so I remember bands like The Vapors existing and so on but I didn't remember 999 at all it was only later when I was doing hospital radio and because you'd never really got actual requests by that stage from patients you had to either make them up or ask the staff what they wanted Mm. and there was a male nurse who said there's this record that I've not heard since it was out because that's the other as we'll come back to with one of your other choices the other thing is there was a time when old music you either had to find a copy of it somewhere or by chance hear it on the radio and that was it it was impossible to get hold of otherwise and he said I love this record Emergency by 999 and there was still a 7 inch single of it in the hospital radio studio and yeah. I played it and I loved it I thought it was fantastic I thought why isn't this better known I think one of their problems is with the best will in the world they look a bit like your teacher's idea of punks they're a bit too clean cut the funny thing about 999 is they were quite central in some odd ways yeah. so right, they formed from putting an advertisement in the Melody Maker to get more band members they turned down Chrissy Hine they turned down John Moss of Culture Club they turned down Tony James of Generation X and they eventually brought in a guy called Pablo the Briton on drums and he'd briefly been a drummer in The Clash and they ended up on records with they were on a record called 20 of Another Kind which is this punk compilation that did very well and that did quite well for them and I mean Mojo a few years back rated them you know was one of the best punk rock singles of all time emergency and they worked with martin russian on their second album and you know toured and played with the only ones and the saints and the stranglers and x-ray specs and xtc so it's like but actually they did very well in the u.s 
they did better in the US than some other bands. Their album Biggest Prize in Sport charted in the Billboard Top 200. Homicide and Hollywood, a couple of their singles did well over there. So yeah, a lot of Americans know 999 better than British people. And that's probably why they ended up on, on that skateboard documentary, because I think the Bones Brigade had used trouble on some of their videos that they put out in the, the late 80s, early 90s. I was astonished to find out there's a skater that uses Bad Hearts by The Tights, which is the first single ever on the Chevy Red label, which, mm. you know, I think probably there were probably about 200 copies pressed of. I only know it from Chevy Red compilations, but yeah. the fact that this skater obviously wasn't born when it was out and he'd somehow found this record and thought, I need to make that mine in some way. I need to bring it to a bigger audience. I think it's great that, you know, there are these other avenues for giving things a new lease of life. Yeah, I mean, the great thing that you have with just having internet-connected devices around all the time is if anyone mentions any artist that sounds even remotely interesting, I immediately Google them and stick them in my notebook and have done that. And even when I was younger and I didn't have the internet and I just was just walking around, I always had a notebook with me and I always just wrote bands down. So it was useful when I was a music journalist because my trivia knowledge around music is obscenely good across a lot of different genres just because i constantly if someone mentions someone i'm going to go and try and listen to them well i remember hearing about a lot of bands like 60s bands like lothar and the hand people before i had any hope of hearing of them yeah you hear people it's a great name for a band as well, it's a it? fantastic name do you know where the name comes from this is one of my I favorite things no. ever no it's no. that they were an early kind of electronic rock act they had a theremin called lothar and they called themselves the hand people because they were actually playing the people that played yeah. yeah i like that that's kind of a lost art really i mean i was thinking about when i mentioned the woolworths compilations that you might have found emergency on i remember getting a compilation called going underground from woolworths that it's basically punk and new age tracks that you would hear on six music pretty much once an hour now remember when i got it i had no idea what spanish stroll by mink deville was which is a classic fantastic you never heard power in the darkness by tom robinson well you do now but it was on this the equivalent to that for me uh, was the shine compilations were massive for me yeah because i couldn't afford to buy all i heard i'm only happy when it rains by garbage i think on shine six and then bought all the garbage records and ended up being quite a big fan of garbage i really liked hole and i kind of liked female fronted bands so when i heard that i was like this is great this is sort of different a bit more electronic and then i heard that butch vig was in that band and obviously like nirvana so i was like well obviously it's odd actually because his production work is nothing like his band work but yeah so yeah those compilations are great and that's something that i think is missing from i guess spotify is good because they have playlists that draw you in and find you stuff but the serendipity of a of a cheap compilation and also just the joy of having a thing is missing i guess well that gives us a great lead into i really really want to know where and how you first heard your next choice this might be familiar to some people but there are reasons we've chosen it so let's see who it is and what it is and then we'll talk about why Hey, 
was a bit of rock on by David Essex. Now, you might be saying, well, everyone knows who David Essex is. Yeah, but tying into what I've just been saying, I knew that rock on existed for a long time before I ever heard it, when you continually heard Gonna Make You a Star and Hold Me Close on every retro 70s thing there was. So it's kind of his forgotten hit record. But Mick, what's your story with it? The thing about this song is I fully think it's one of the best songs ever written. Because what I love about it is it's skeletal. It just, it, there's barely anything to it. It's so stripped back. Also, product of Jeff Wayne, who, you know, yeah. he later worked with on War of the Worlds. I heard it in two ways. The first time I heard it, I was about, I was, must have been 16 because I was I was allowed to work. So I was 16 and I was working as an usher at Norwich Theatre Royal. And pretty much once every two years, David Essex would come around on tour. Women who had screamed at him when they were teenagers came and screamed at him. Now he was, you know. And the thing about it, I would say this for David Essex. He's still a handsome man now. He's one of those men who's just maintained, gone through stages of different types of handsomeness. But he's like a salt and pepper handsome dude now. Anyway, he would play rock on and I, and I sort of quite liked it and half listened. But, you know, I was working. So I didn't. I just was aware that this song and I quite like that song. I also like Gonna Make You a Star and some of his more brassy stuff, as in brassy like Bet Lynch rather than brassy musically. But again, on the same skate video by the Bones Brigade, I heard Rock On and I, I was watching, yes, some of, of my favourite skaters skating and they were skating to Rock On. And in that context, it's just a great record. It's even greater record because it's just something about it. It just sounds alien and otherworldly and just phenomenal. And to see, you know, Tommy Guerrero or Steve Caballero or um, Rodney Mullen, who I think is the greatest skateboarder of all time, or Tony Hawk, you know, skating around the streets of some Californian concrete jungle to rock on is it there's a cognitive dissonance to it but also somehow it's sort of perfect so that's how and i just think it's a genuinely brilliant brilliant record well there's an even weirder mix of context when the background to it is i mean david essex wrote it but it's actually from have you ever seen that'll be the day it is yeah yeah because they were doing for the soundtrack obviously there's old rock and roll records on there but there's people like viv stanshall doing you know new rock and roll style compositions on it this was his one and apparently they were trying to get a rock and roll sound in the studio and Jeff Wayne just found it wasn't working and it's Herbie Flowers the great session bassist playing on this and he just played that riff with the echo units turned the way they were yeah he's he's double tracked get trying to make it sound authentic we are doing it like this the weird thing is it sounds like it was influenced by dub reggae but it very clearly wasn't. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And uh, it's just because they put it through a delay unit. But yeah, Flowers got double his normal session fee. So he received £24 instead of £12 for uh, working on that. But also, I think partly they were kind of thinking a little bit of the double track bass line on Walk on the Wild Side, which Herbie Flowers also played. Quite possibly, yeah, because Herbie Flowers was very prominent at that point. I mean, one thing that really qualifies a completely forgotten thing was he played on and produced David David Bowie's lost single, Holy Holy. There are various stories about why that never resurfaced from 1971 until a box set a couple of years ago. Yeah, he's on Space Oddity. He's on Diamond Dogs. He plays on Tumbleweed Connection and Mad Man Across the Water for Elton John. He's on several George Harrison records. He's on Paul McCartney's Give My Regards to Broad Street. He did some stuff with Ringo Starr. Like, so he, he's only missing Lennon out of the Beatles that he worked with. Yeah, and his Lennon collection, though, is that he worked with Harry Nilsson on Nilsson Smilson. Yeah, I mean, people don't give... Herbie Flowers enough credit and he's still around as well oh he also composed Grandad of course oh he did that's correct <laughs> and he was in the last lineup of T-Rex so I mean like he's a Zelig type feature in 70s and 80s British pop music I hope there's two records in the same well pretty much the same time that don't go together it's Grandad and Holy Holy <laughs> 
<laughs> sure to think what would happen if you combine the lyrics of them but I'm trying to think of when I first heard Rock On because like I say it didn't come round on radio quite a lot because there was a limited amount of exposure that you know old records would get at that point it was maybe maybe Radio 2 maybe Pick of the Pops on Radio 1 on a Sunday afternoon that was it really you know there were obviously there were the 70s dinosaur DJs still playing the records that they had never got over but that was always you know REO Speedwagon and Soft Rock stuff like that it was never things like this I think it was after Denim the band had on their first album back in Denim there was yeah. the Osmonds which is kind of a monologue about how grim growing up in the 70s was mm. and there's a bit in that where Lawrence is listing loads of the pop singles that he liked around that time and he says Billy don't be a hero hey David rock on and suddenly there's a bit of bass like on rock on yeah. I remember hearing that and thinking that must be what it sounds like how weird is that that you know as obsessed as I was just with filter music through by that yeah. point I had not heard Rock On until it must have been after late 1992. And there are some weird covers of it out there. Def Leppard covered it on a record of theirs called Yeah, which is just cover versions of 70s hits. It gets played constantly in America. You hear it on American rock radio a lot. Smashing Pumpkins covered it. Loads of weird ones. Tony Basil did a cover of it. Well, there's that weird, dreadful film with Corey Hayman, Corey Feldman, Dream of Little Dreams. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's covered by by Michael Damien, who had been in a soap opera guy it's not good it is not good do not soil your experience nothing about that, that film is good there's a blondie cover of it which is actually decent the weirdest one and one of the ones I really quite enjoy is Tortoise the kind of math rock there's a cover of it on their album The Catastrophist which only came out to four years ago it's actually pretty good post rock rock on post rock on well, yeah David Essex like you say he doesn't get enough credit really because he could act he could write he could sing really well he could play instruments apparently he's really nice I've met him a couple of times when I was a teenage usher and he was just really nice can't speak more highly of David Essex to be honest and he was on the Saint Etienne record which immediately gets him a million points in my book he's a really good songwriter and rock on is just it's so weird that sparseness of it particularly from that 70s period where you would lard on everything possible it's such a smart thing you know jeff wayne is i mean not that jeff wayne is a man known for his minimalism you know so <laughs> i mean and i love war of the worlds i love in all its variants i love war of the worlds there's just it's a brilliant thing and david essex's performance as the artillery man on that is so good and it's one of those ones where other people play that role and you think oh they're decent but i always find myself thinking yeah but it's not david essex is it he kind of originated and nailed that role really well, i remember being really impressed by in the early to mid 80s I think he had a single called I think it was called Me and My Girl Nightclubbing I remember hearing it on the radio and thinking it was a little bit sounded a little bit fogeyish a bit out of touch but then he did it on Checkers Plays Pop and his performance was he knew it was a you know a slightly out of touch slightly fogeyish song and he was playing that up brilliantly for the kids and for the camera he knew that it was all a big joke you know he hadn't gone from being the guy who did rock on and gonna make you a star to being desperately out of touch it was all a huge prank and i really appreciated that i mean what is crazy is his most recent top 40 hit i mean he doesn't really do music anymore but his most recent top 40 hit into well he does it but doesn't put out new records was a number 38 hit in 1994 now if you consider that his first single came out in 1965 that is pretty good run although it took till 74 for him to you know i mean gotta make your star number one in 74 but rock on got to number three and i think probably it is that sparseness that kept it off radio for a long time 
time. I mean, you do hear it again now, I'd say, here and there, but it didn't fit in between oldies they wanted to revive because it sounds so different. Here's a prediction. I'm going to give you this prediction. I think in a future Guardians of the Galaxy film, Rock On will appear. Yeah, if that happens, nobody owes me anything, but I'll just say I knew it. <laughs> I, I knew it. Okay, well, thematically, moving from the Milano and the Benatar into your next choice because it involves, well, no, actually, it doesn't involve any spacecraft that, or anything like them, so I've completely messed up that link, but I don't care. <laughs> I love it still. This is a clip tangentially related to well it's the whole mania surrounding this at the time don't make this at home now if you can find tracy island in the shops and it's not easy it could cost you as much as 34 pounds 99p but this one is created entirely from junk and it'll cost you nothing but just a bit of hard work you'll get a lot of fun out of it though and in true blue peter style ours thunderbird 3 comes out of a toilet roll and Thunderbird 1 shoots out of a yoghurt pot and Thunderbird 2 comes out of a tissue box and the mechanical trees here, well those are just pipe cleaners. So here's my countdown to make the brand new look Tracy Island. Okay, that was a bit of the Blue Peter demonstration of how to make your own Tracy Island without spending money on the licensed product, which was actually really good and deserved to have money spent on it. I don't know whether you owned the Tracy Island or if you made one, but Mick, it certainly sounds like you had the Thunderbirds comic. Yes, I did. Uh, no, I did not own the island because I couldn't afford to. Try to make the Blue Peter one. It was really, really, really awful uh, and <laughs> fell apart. But I did have a Thunderbird 2. I did have a toy Thunderbird 2, which I absolutely adored. Uh, Thunderbird 2 was my favourite of the Thunderbird vehicles. Yeah, so, yeah, this is the Thunderbirds tie-in comic published by Fleetway. First issue came out in 1991 and was published for quite a few years, actually. And I have, in my grandparents' loft, every single issue. As far as I can tell, because although, you know, I love Jerry and Sylvia Anderson stuff, it was a younger audience that latched onto those early 90s repeats. And it kind of felt like the, although I did get a Tracy Island eventually when they were reduced, when, yeah. the, when the mania faded a bit, it kind of felt like everything around that was being pitched to that younger audience. And by that point, I was reading Sylvia's autobiography, buying the VHSs. I wasn't that interested in the comic, but it looks like it was actual reprints of the 60s strips with some new material. Yeah, that's correct, I think. It was a really good comic. Like, every issue I got, it was really good. It was really exciting. you got to remember, like, 99 one i was seven so i got the first issue and i was seven and my grand got it ordered at local news agents and i got it every week and it was my thing that my grand got me when that comic stopped it finished in 1995 something like that i moved on to 2000 ad and i am a subscriber to 2000 ad now but yeah thunderbirds was the first comic as a seven-year-old that i got on a regular basis and and collected every single one of and read cover to cover and reread and like to get the whole pile of them and arrange them out on my grand's carpet the big collection of them i had just something about it i mean i think that you know yes i really like the tv show but the comic itself i really enjoyed as well i just like the notion i think with the thunderbirds that they were you know they were trying to help their whole thing was helping people they were never kind of violent i mean obviously i went on to like 
2000 AD and really adored Judge Dredd, which is an absolute shift. And I, I remember going to school when I was about 13, 14 and doing a presentation on why Judge Dredd was good. And no one else at school thought that. So that was interesting. With Thunderbirds, yeah, it, it's quite a good thing to get into, I think, when you're a seven, eight year old. This notion of like, well, these are good people and they work together and they try to do their best. And then, you know, obviously slight issue with the bad guy in the sense that he's quite racialized Asian, <laughs> which I some issues with the hood now when you look at it you think well it's a bit but yeah it just it was fun and also like the toys are great i mean thunderbird one and thunderbird two are particularly cool i love the space station but yeah thunderbird two was my favorite i'm not quite sure i think because it's the most flexible it can do a few things couldn't be bothered with the submarine like they'd always be stretching to make the submarine do something and frankly when you've got stingray which is superior for underwater stuff why would you waste your time with the thunderbirds underwater episodes well that's the point because they are all in the same universe which the comics was something that really explored they really did jeremy and sylvia use tv 21 which is their comic in the 60s mm. to do all kinds of cross-platform stuff before that was even really a thing here's an interesting thing as well this is i'm a second generation fan of jerry anderson because my mom in the playground as a little girl always wanted to be destiny angel and was an absolutely avid captain scarlet fan so she would watch that with me when it was put on repeats and probably my favorite of the tv shows is captain scarlet because it has a darkness to it that i like well that is pretty cool also that ties in with well how the angels were recruited was explored in the comics and it never is on screen how lady penelope met parker which is i don't know if you've ever seen that but that is a brilliant story yes i have i have and it is really good there's so much good stuff and i think you know if i was on a thing and it was like well what are your favorite tv shows like i'd be picking captain scarlet and the mistrons as one because i love the darker tone of it and i love captain black because he's just so horrible but thunderbirds is a good show for a seven year old you know it is yeah. it does the job and the comic really did and you know to go on as i have done to be someone who's made magazines you know i worked at stuff magazine and q and and i've done some stuff for other magazines the thing i will say tie-in magazines what would be called consumer publishing they're often pretty ropey but these Thunderbird ones were very well made. They were all really good quality. And Fleetway did a really good job with them. And you're right, a lot of it was reprints. But the new material was really well integrated as well. And it's a collection that I won't throw away and I would never sell just because I love them. I just think they're really lovely objects of a time when I was, a, you know, where I had that optimism of childhood. And I just looked at these and just enjoyed them in a very pure, unfiltered, not bothered what anyone else thought way. Just these were these great things. And every time a new issue came out, it was like the best thing possible and also it's just a representation of my grand's love of like getting these for me and then still keeping them for me in her loft so that you know they've been kept safe you know and they're all dry and safe and kept safely like these precious objects and really they're, they're just these like throwaway tie-in comics for a tv series that was on repeats but there's something about them that's very precious to me you know and, th and that preciousness is not just the object itself it's all the kind of familial love and, and nostalgic power that they have i've got to ask though because you have mentioned that captain scarlet and mr on is your favourite Supermarination series and my amusing tale with that is I knew nothing about that until I found the TV21 annual at school fair right. and you know immediately I was looking and thinking what are all these shows I've never heard of what's Fireball XL5 but because it didn't say Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons at the start of the strips it just had the Spectrum logo and they kept referring to Spectrum I thought that programme must be called Spectrum and I once got really excited that there was an art show on the BBC called Spectrum and I said oh it's that those puppets and my dad's like no it's <laughs> they're interviewing Werner Herzog you won't like it you know that sort of thing yeah. there was always things were from the Spectrum Arena on the BBC as 
well, which confused me. And then I saw in the listing Captain Scarlet and the Mr. Ons. I thought, oh, right, it's called that then. But I want to know where you stand on the Secret Service, which is my favourite. And I admit it's an acquired taste. Secret Service is like my second favourite. Good. <laughs> it's my second favourite. I do like it a lot. But I take partly with Captain Scarlet is because I love the theme tune. Just love the theme tune. I love just the aggressiveness of Captain Scarlet. It's so, so dark for a kid's thing. You know, the Mysterons are always doing terrorism and like blowing stuff up and they're really very brutal. Also, the dark notion of like, I think it's a very dark idea for a, a kid's show. The notion that Captain Black is this heroic guy and then he just gets taken over by the Mysterons and then he's just, he's this flesh puppet for them. That's incredibly dark when you think about it and you just think, God, what if that could, could that happen to me? Yeah, obviously Thunderbirds is so sort of anti it's like the military without the military whereas Captain Scarlet's like properly like yeah we're at war and this is pretty brutal and there's something about that that I quite like and of course back in 1967 if you lived in the right ITV region you could have watched Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons and the Prisoner on the same night now what's oh, that going to do to your head and I adored the Prisoner and one of my favourite singles which I have on 7 Inch and, 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 and adore is, um, is Patrick McGuire and Escape by the Times which was who was in that band because that's that was Ed Ball who was later heavily involved with Creation Records yeah that's what I was going to say it was yeah uh, that's a great record that is a great record do you know who's doing the voice of number two on it this is a great fact the drummer who was the drummer in a couple of bands Ed Ball played in including the television personalities was Mark Empire Shepherd right later became an actor he was Canton Everett Delaware the third in Doctor Who a couple of years wow okay a couple of the American set stories his father Morgan Shepherd is also an actor who was in things like Max Headroom. Right. And he just was like, my dad could do the voice of number two. That's who it is. I love that. That's fantastic. The Television Personalities was a band that I stumbled upon through a rough trade compilation. I love the Television Personalities as well. I would say Dan Tracy, Ed Ball, Mark Shepard. Yeah, they're all really good. But again, a band that most people... Because what I love about Television Personalities and and The Times as well is is something that this podcast is about, really. It's like, you know, dragging in all these bits of pop culture in because you've got Patrick McGoon single as The Times, but then you've got I Know Where Sid Barrett Lives by Television Personalities, which is another great little like pop culture referencing single. Yeah, anyway, I digress. I am a king of... No, you're absolutely right, because, you know, the songs like David Hockney's Diaries, at that point that they came out, they were just mining the past for stuff that they found interesting. And the other brilliant thing they did was on their hilarious single, Where's Bill Grundy Now? That's a great single. It opens with the sting from the start of the Bill Grundy Sex Pistols interview. That bit of that synth cover of Windy by the Association. Yeah. They put that at the start of the song. I mean, that is the kind of lengths they would go to with these pop culture references. And they weren't sort of sneering ironic ones, like you say, they were interesting ones. Well, they were well me, done it feels ones. it feels a bit like a forerunner of something like Half Man, Half Biscuit, which again I don't think are sneering about there. I don't think he's ever sneering about his references. I think he, it's very loving. Okay, well I should legally say before we move on that we're going to come on to a rumour that some television personalities did have a fix to them. Now, this did not involve any members of the television personalities. It probably didn't involve any of the people we're going to mention, but here's a clip I'm going to play in all innocence.
Deep featuring Mark Harmon with I Feel Love Strength Johnny Remember Me. The reason I picked this is it features two people who were the unlucky recipients of this completely false rumour that did the rounds in playgrounds for years. Mick, what was it? A rock star was taken to hospital and had their stomach pumped and they got a pint of semen out of his or her, her stomach. And I've done quite a bit of research into this, into this <laughs> rumour because... Because it's quite interesting because the theory is that it goes back to Clara Bow and the rumor being that she, you know, had sex with an entire football, uh, American football team, which, again, was not true. So and then it goes it starts to really kick off in the rock world with the false rumor that it was Elton John and then the false rumor that it was Rod Stewart and then the false rumor that it was Mark Harmon. And then finally, in my era, the false rumor that it was Robbie Williams. So the question is. We know it's not true because also like the number of men required. Like, so look, famously, 10 cc is named after the amount or the average amount a man ejaculates plus one because they're above average, which is honestly one of the most pathetic names in rock history. So anyway, we know that the average man ejaculates about nine cc's at any one time. Right. So to get a pint of ejaculate would require a hell of a lot of men. Or a hell of a lot of time, neither of which is likely. And also the human stomach and blah, blah, blah. Like it's, it's medically impossible. So we know it's not true. So the question really is, what is it about? Like what kind of weird homophobic instinct creates this rumour? And why is it a rumour that bounces through playgrounds across decades? Because, you know, every rock era, I guess till the 90s, I don't think it's been repeated since. I, I don't I think those playground myths because of Google don't stand up as easily now. But Snopes has a whole page on the rock star stomach pump legend. So, you know, it is a it's a thing that crosses countries, continents even. Where does it come from? Well, like you say, I think it is rooted in a fear of at the very least effeminate men, because, you know, at the time it would be applied to Rod Stewart. He was wearing a lot of eyeshadow and that Jeff Beck once said but I remember it being like I said applied to Jimmy Somerville as well it's quite key to remember here that he was openly gay in a way that I hadn't seen before that he was almost saying I am normal I look the same as you what are you going to do about it because he looked yeah. quite although he was a small guy he looked quite hard actually he looked quite yeah. tough and you know before that obviously Mark Harmon courted sort of weirdness but well Mark Harmon was a bit like always played on that leather queen thing and stuff a bit more and you know the whole sex dwarf thing and stuff yes. where it's like and, and I think Mark Harmon he, Mark Harmon is in is sort of the same same kind of space as holly johnson which is like i'm not just gay i'm i'm you know i'm i come from a queer culture and this is the you know i'm going to represent myself as a queer pop star yeah whereas yeah jimmy somerville is very much well i mean the fact that him and the reverend richard coles you know the two of them are kind of i think they represent some i always used to say this when i worked in gay clubs i just used to say one of the things that every gay pride parade should have is a float which has two 45 year old men on it who haven't had sex in about 10 years who are watching antiques roadshow and consciously not talking to each other because that's as representative of gay experience as like uh, some more extreme ends of it and, and and it's all valid but yeah that's interesting that I, I i never thought about that with jimmy Somerville. but you're right he sort of had a, a kind of aggressive normalness to him which I, I quite appreciate well i'm also assured by people who were there at the time that the rumor also was connected to a pop star from the early 70s that we do not name now and let's be honest, they were barking up completely. Who had, who had to there. be a double initial of the same letter. Well, it, going back to Rock On previously, that's a troublesome thing about America. That pop star's songs are still played a lot on American radio and at American baseball. And they don't seem to have any willingness to stop doing, which is crazy. I think the 
tempting thing about that rumour for kids, though, especially around that time when you know, there's less access to information and so on, is that, obviously, you look at that rumour now, I mean, Richard Herring's with a whole routine about this, nothing about it is physically viable in any way, as you've already alluded to. And there's also the added wilder bit that people would sometimes say there was dog ejaculate involved. Yeah. You know, as Rich said, what happened? You know, not only did they pump, insert pop star's name stomach, but you know, they said, oh, hang on, look at all this. Like we it. better take it to the lab and get it tested. We don't know how. We don't have dog measuring equipment here, but it's come back as dog positive. But, you know, you couldn't disprove it. It sounded like you knew more about a taboo subject than you did. And it also, this is the nasty element of it, it distanced you from, quote, those gays. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I, I had to go with my mum when I was in sixth form to say to the head of sixth form at my at the school that I went to that I found it unacceptable that people just kept calling each other gay or, you know, other stronger, more slur words to gay people. So, and that was what? That would be 1998, 99, you know? So the homophobia, we know it's still there and it was pretty bad in the 90s still particularly in the era of the lad mags where a kind of unreconstructed traditionalized masculine toxic kind of masculinity was pretty prevalent and i also think the thing about this rumor is you'll often get in schools boys and girls who claim to know more about sex than they do even though they've done nothing sexual themselves at that but they'll say oh someone told me x y or z and i think that's true with this it's you're right it's 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 saying that you have a knowledge of a kind of this extreme orgiistic depraved rock our sexuality and then somehow you know someone within that world who can tell you this thing and actually look i know a ton of real things that happened in rock music that i would never say that i know from having been in the industry and there's some pretty wild stuff but you know it's all within the the remit of like what is physically and you know humanly possible in sexuality <laughs> a slightly lighter note before we finish are there any because i remember a couple of enduring playground rumors my favorite one being that whenever there was a character in something that was much loved and a bit weird a rumour would quickly go round that the actor portraying them had died. I mean, I remember, I remember people that. saying the man who was R2-D2's died, the man who was E.T.'s died. You know, it wasn't true at all. I'm sure people probably said mini-me at that point. But I remember being on the bus long after I'd left school and hearing some kids saying Scatman John's died. Do you know, I remember the Scatman John rumour. So that must have pinged around the country. But the one that I like, which isn't dark and still prevails now, and you still get people say it in pubs, even though we know it's not true, is Bob Holness and, and Baker Street, because people want that to be true so desperately. And I love that. I wish it was true. And actually, sometimes I think to myself, I don't want to correct them. Let it continue. Let them have that. <laughs> well, if we've done anything today, we've allowed a few playground myths to continue. Nick, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. Set them up, then I knocked him down. Where's Bill Grande now? Where's Bill Grande now? And all the newspapers did smile. And stretched the story out for miles. Till Richard and Lisa get married again. Where's Bill Grande now? Where's Bill Grande now? Where's
One at One by Tim Worthington. The story of comedy at BBC Radio 1 from Penny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. More details at timworthington.org.